Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 Third Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. So I love theme parks. I love, since I was a kid, I've loved going to Silverwood up. It was just a couple hours away from here. I love the roller coasters. I love the thrill. I love the rides. And uh, as long as I'm relatively strapped in, like safe, I'm also, there's this paradoxical relationship I have because I'm also terrified of heights, but for some reason I love roller coasters. It's, it's weird. At any rate, one of my favorite things about my wife and I's time in Southern California was the fact that we lived like a couple hours away from like the greatest roller coaster park in the country, well, one of them, Six Flags Magic Mountain. It's one of the greatest world roller coaster parks in the world and our apartment was like an hour and a half from this magical place. But there's one aspect of um, this magical place and places like it, popular amusement parks, Disneyland, Disney World, that I don't like and nobody likes. And that's the horror of a long line. Perhaps like nowhere else on earth, maybe the DMV sometimes, the wait at an amusement park lasts forever. But when you finally get there, when you arrive at your seat and you take that ride, that thrill, it feels worth it for like 50 seconds, and then it's over. And you realize you just spent two hours waiting for a 50-second thrill. So whether it is lines at a theme parks, queues at the DMV, or waiting rooms at the doctor's office, when it's all said and done, sometimes waiting just does not feel worth it. Waiting is hard. Our text this morning is all about waiting. Waiting in anticipation, waiting with dread, waiting with hope and waiting without hope. And we're going to spend our time this morning closing out Luke 1, talking about waiting. In our text this morning, it's going to be the culmination of Zechariah and Israel's silent waiting on the Lord. And unlike a theme park that will leave you dissatisfied, longing for more, and questioning the value of your endeavor, the waiting we're going to see this morning produces something beautiful and glorious. And the reason this waiting is so different this morning is because it's a waiting grounded in the hope of the promises of God and his word. And so this morning, we're going to see this. Our big idea this morning is just going to be simply this. The promises of God are worth waiting for. And we're going to see this in three parts. One, waiting on God's promises to worship, in God's, worship of God's promises and witness to God's promises. And our text this morning is all about, as Devin read, the ch- child promised. And appropriately in the light of the coming Christmas celebration of Jesus' birth, We're looking at the birth of the one who would come before and prepare the way for Jesus. Our narrative is centered this morning on the birth of John the Baptist and primarily his father, Zechariah. So as we get started, I want to pray one more time and just ask God to be present with us. Lord Jesus, I I pray for humility as Devin did for every single one of us in this room as we open your word, as we look to your promises and to the gospel. Lord, I just pray that our hearts would be humbled and melted before your glory and before your truth and before your promises. Father, I pray that whatever baggage we bring into this room, whatever hard and suffering and pain we might carry with us, Lord, I pray that we would bathe it in the promises of your word. Lord, be with us. Help us in our weakness and our foolishness and in our blindness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I want to start by looking back a couple of weeks ago to where we, when we began our series in the book of Luke. I want to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 13. 
says this, but an angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Zechariah is a priest serving the Lord in the way that God has given him to serve the Lord by caring and interceding for his people. He was an old man with a wife who was barren and resigned to the fate of fatherlessness. Elizabeth being barren meant that the kids just were not in the cards for them. The angel arrives while he is sitting in his temple attending to his duties and tells him that this impossible thing is going to happen. This wonderful thing is going to happen. They're going to conceive and bear a child. And look at Zechariah's response to the angel in verses 18 through 20. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah's disbelief and faithlessness inspired the consequence of muteness for him. He couldn't speak. The, guys who, the guy whose role it was to represent Israel's faith before God did not have faith himself. And so it was appropriate for the guy whose role was to be a voice for God's people would lose his own voice. Zechariah becomes a mute, unable to speak, yet still the joy of a promised child to him and his wife. And so began the theme of our morning, their waiting. A promise from God delivered by an angel from the very presence of God, and yet now they wait. Elizabeth waits in anticipation as her belly starts to grow, and Zechariah waits in muted silence. It's our first point this morning, waiting on God's promise. Now, it must have been agony for him as a priest whose role it was to communicate with people and God to be silent, where speaking was his very role appointed to him by God, waiting in agony for the day that he could again speak and fulfill his role as a priest. The months, the months must have felt like an eternity for him. And of course, it was a consequence of his own faithless and disbelieving heart, but that certainly wouldn't diminish his frustration or his struggle. It would be a reasonable response, if not a right one, but a reasonable one for bitterness and anger to fester in Zechariah's heart, in his muted heart. And as his wife was filled with the Holy Spirit and he witnesses these beautiful things, she says, and then this beautiful song that Mary sings, here Zechariah sits silently waiting. Unable to perform his duties as he was hope as a priest, unable to express the joy of his wife's pregnancy. Pick up the narrative with me in our verses this morning in chapter 1, verses 57 through 58. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. This is the birth of their son. Notice the neighbors and their family. The son is born and everyone is rejoicing with her. Undoubtedly, all of these people would have known everything. It's a close-knit community. They would have been close. They would have known why they couldn't have a child. And so their celebration is both at the fact that they're going to have a child and the fact that God's power and mercy has overcome their fallenness. So, of course, there's going to be a party. This is, after all, a miracle by God himself. An act of God is exactly what they got. And these God-fearing people rejoiced with them. And so the moment has arrived for Zechariah. His son is born so he can speak again. No. More waiting for Zechariah. 
Even after his birth, we see yet more waiting. Look at Luke 1, verse 59 through 63. And on the eighth day, that's eight days after his birth, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. More waiting, waiting to name the boy as the angel had instructed. Eight more days he waited, eight more days Zechariah was silent. Everyone is experiencing this moment with this happiness, this exuberance, this joy. And yet again, if you see a theme here, Zechariah waits in silence. And as they come to circumcise and name the boy, they begin to try and name him. And there are these expectations, expectations that the boy's name be tied to his family, that his name somehow reflect the honor of his household. Perhaps his name should be Zechariah like his father. Their friends and family, they were to rejoice with them and support them. And yet they had their own ideas and expectations for the boy, starting with his name. Elizabeth's response is simply, no, his name shall be John. And it's funny here. We have a moment of, I think, comedy here. The, they all turn in response after Elizabeth says his name shall be John, and they turn to Zechariah to get support maybe, and they're signing to him, sign language. Zechariah is mute, not deaf. He can hear them, assuredly, and yet they're signing to him. And so they turn to Zechariah for help and support in naming him something that would reflect his family. And so he grabs a stone tablet, and on it simply writes, his name is John. With conviction, with purpose, as if it is already a reality, Zechariah writes on that stone tablet. So remember, the reason Zechariah is in the position he is, silent, muted, is because of his faithlessness, because of his lack of belief, his lack of faith that God would give him an old man and his barren wife a child. And yet here we are, Zechariah's faith is as certain as his muteness. To him, John's name is not a decision to be made or a matter of debate. The reality is unshakable. His name is already John. And this is what's so fascinating and I think important this morning is that the last time Zechariah was able to speak, he was doubting. He was questioning. He was disbelieving an angel that appeared to him. How often is it that we get to see an angel? I don't know about you, but if an angel appeared to me, I'm pretty sure I would believe what the angel says. An angel from the very presence of God, but not the priest, Zechariah. Yet nearly a year later, here he is. Faith, so unshakably strong that for him, John's name already is John, because God declared it so. So for Zechariah, this season of waiting in silence it produced faith. It was in the silence that Zechariah's faith in the Lord was strengthened, not weakened. It was in the suffering of muteness that his belief became an internal reality. It was an affliction that provoked Zechariah to return to the well of the Lord in faithful belief. Could you imagine, too, those eight days of agony where he assumed, my child's born, I can speak again? And yet those eight days he remained mute. It must have been excruciating. Waiting is hard. And it's often in the waiting where our faith isn't strengthened, but wavers. 
When moments in life seem uncertain, expectations are left unsatisfied, where God's promise of joy, peace, satisfaction, and hope remain a future promise and yet a distant reality. There are millions of circumstances in which we find ourselves waiting and waiting on the Lord. Sometimes it's maturity, growing out of the sin that binds our flesh, struggling to constantly put off the temptations our hearts are drawn to. This is my biggest struggle, is waiting and wrestling with my selfishness. Every single day I wake up and I have to wrestle on what feels like physically wrestle with my desire to serve myself. Every hour of every day, my heart is pulled to serve itself and not my wife, my children, my neighbors, or my church. I have to confess, my waiting looks a lot less like Zachariah's than I'd like it to. Maybe you're waiting on circumstances outside of your control. Maybe someone to come to their senses. A milestone in your career or your life that you've been hoping for or expecting for a long time. But even beyond literally waiting, this waiting can just be periods or seasons of struggle and suffering like Zachariah's. An illness that grips your body, an illness that grips your mind and won't let go. And there's an appropriate posture for these moments. And by the grace of God, Zechariah was given this period of silence to examine his heart and land at faithfully and certain, in faith and certainty rather than doubt. And at the end of his silence, Zechariah arrives with a certain faith, an unshakable conviction that the promise of the Lord is already a reality. In his waiting, Zechariah's faith grows. Johnny talked about this a little bit while back in his sermon on 3 John, but waiting is not a passive experience. We think waiting and we think standing in line and waiting, doing nothing. But the only way Zechariah arrives at this kind of conviction and his exuberant worship, as we will see, is by intentionally pressing his heart into the promises of God. And that pressing into the promises is what we see in Zechariah's worship in our second point this morning. Zechariah's waiting produces faith, but it also produces worship. Worship in God's promises. Bottled up in this mute shell for so long, Zechariah, unable to worship, unable to sing, unable to praise, unable to pray, unable to speak, what comes out at once is this, once at once is this song entirely dedicated to the wonder and the glory and the beauty of a faithful God. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 64. Right after he writes, his name is John, and they all wondered, 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Right after his declaration in certain faith, his lips are opened. and his wor- With his words, he utters blessings and praise to the Lord. No bitterness, no frustration that he would make Zechariah suffer like this. He would open his mouth after such a trial and bless the Lord. Worship him for the gift he would give such a faithless man. Praise him for the undeserved grace of a child that he could not himself produce. See, I think of this song. I have a three-year-old, and she's getting into like toys that I loved as a kid. I think of this song kind of like those wind-up cars that you pull back, and like the wheels start to pull back, and it starts to build this tension, and it starts to click, click, click. And he release it, and it sprints across the floor. I think about Zachariah's overflow of worship, like that building and building of tension until he can't help but worship God. 
What a beautiful song this is. Unable to utter words of worship and praise until this moment, we're given a Holy Spirit-filled song of worship, a song that's been building since the moment the Lord took away his voice. Look at that song in verse 67 through 79. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days." And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What a beautiful song. You notice we skipped over a couple of verses because I believe this song, this blessed be the Lord, is the blessing that he's speaking of in verse 64. What a beautiful song this is. If we break down this this song into two different halves, we see the first half, this, this larger focus on the promises and the covenants of God, specifically to redeem his people through a savior. And then it's the second half where we see him rejoicing at his son and what his son will be, and what his son will do. And it is that first half, his first words, where he ruminates on the larger promises of God and redemption. And he mentions Israel, he mentions David, he mentions Abraham, he mentions the prophets of old. He talks about the promise and covenant that God made to his people to redeem them. It's not till the second half he talks about his own son. The first half is the horn of salvation, the house of David, the redeemer promised. See, what is first is often what is most important. And we can assume that with the first words that this has spoken in nearly a year was what was closest to Zechariah's heart of worship. And it was the the long-promised fulfillment of God in Jesus. And notice the, the verb tenses of the opening lines. Look at 68 and 69 with me. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Zechariah has the same unshakable faith that what God says he will do will be done. To him, the prophets of old didn't speak of a possibility or something that may happen. The promises to David and Abraham were not platitudes to comfort those that were suffering and the ailing soul, but realities unshakable to be cherished and believed in faith. Just as he wrote, his name is John. He speaks of the coming Messiah as an already present reality. Almost as if a correction to his earlier mistake with the angel. He's not going to do that again. He will not question the declarations and the promises of God. To him, reality is God's to dictate. And as the son of God resides in Mary's womb, the horn of salvation has already arrived. This Jesus will be the fulfillment of the covenants of God to his people. 
To David, he promised a rule and kingdom that would never end. From his line would come a ruler who would last forever. Look at 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. When your days are, he's talking to David, when he's talking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down in your Lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And to Abraham, God promised he would bless all the families of the earth, that everyone on the planet would be blessed through his offspring. Look at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then perhaps the most remembered prophecy in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, spoken by the word of the prophets. God is going to bring peace and redemption through that reigning king and through that promised savior that is going to bless the world. Isaiah 53, verses four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These are the promises. These are the promises that inspired worship in Zechariah. He is overflowing with praise based on promises and covenants made centuries, millennia ago. Fueling his worship is certainty in the present fulfillment of words spoken by these prophets of old. In his very household, through his wife, the one who would prepare the way, and through the relative Mary, Jesus, the one who is the way. It is on the promise of the gospel that Zechariah placed his hope. In his waiting, in his suffering and muteness, his present joy was not shaped by his suffering or his circumstances, but by the certainty of God's promise. And it is that certain hope that demands an overflow of worship that cannot be contained. It would have been really easy for Zechariah to praise the Lord with his first words that I could speak, I could worship, I could sing, I could pray. It would have been appropriate. But Zechariah knows it's not his suffering that he needs relief from. It's not his suffering that he needs deliverance from. His, mutant, his muteness and silence was not his true affliction. Look at what they're being delivered from, the promise or the problem and the answer. Luke chapter 1, verses 70 to 71. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Skip down to verse 73. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. It is from their enemies that they are being delivered. For nearly their entire history, Israel has existed as a, a nation fighting to survive. From Egypt to Babylon to Rome, they have been the subject of abuse and occupation. And undoubtedly, on the minds of those hearing the song, reading this, 
was provoked in their hearts and minds deliverance from their present circumstances, their occupation by Rome, and any other people that would seek to rule them and deny them their identity as God's people. The expectation of a savior was one that would overthrow their enemies and reinstitute rule by God through his appointed monarch and the law of Moses. For so many, those past promises are only fulfilled in the temporal and immediate deliverance from their current circumstances. We find ourselves in that same mindset. I think sometimes we like to think we're special, like living now, today, like we are. With the internet, smartphones, electric cars, virtual reality, I saw this week, apparently flying cars are a real thing now. Who'd have thought? I was told that I would never drive and that flying cars would actually be flying me everywhere when I was a kid. Cool to know that's a reality. At any point, we like to think of ourselves as special living in this time. And sometimes we like to blame our struggles to worship and obey on the temptations that are all around us, social media, entertainment, how addiction is easy, The need for immediate fulfillment and gratification may certainly be exacerbated by social media and these other things that we have. But as you'll see reading any of the Gospels, the need and demand for immediate deliverance is an expectation of the flesh thrust upon Jesus by the ancient world as much as it is by us. And yet, that doesn't make our temptation to think that way any less harmful. Perhaps you're in this room and you're not a believer. You look around you and what you see are buttoned up, happy, contented lives of religious people with little suffering to get in the way of what they have going on. And as an evangelical culture that is certainly a facade painted on the faces of many in our country that would call themselves Christians, many in the West that would call themselves Christian, we hide our struggles, we hide our suffering, we hide our doubt, we hide our pain that none would think us unbelieving like Zechariah or unworthy. It is both inside and outside of his suffering that Zechariah cherished the promises of the Lord. Cherishing these promises means not ignoring the need for these promises, the need for deliverance, the need for saving from our true enemy. The moment we hide our need is the moment we tell ourselves and those around us that we don't need saving. But we need Jesus. We need help. And the first place Zechariah goes when he receives it are the promises of a Savior in the waiting, in the long night of darkness, uncertainty, sin, and suffering. We are not without hope for today. These past promises shape how we experience the waiting because these past promises offer a certain hope. And that hope is not just eternity. Sometimes it can feel disingenuous and and disconnected. When we're in the midst of suffering and someone says, oh, there's hope in eternity. When you face disaster or heartache or pain or suffering that you can barely understand, much less describe, and the only hope is often offered is eternity, it can feel hollow. Oh, you lost your job? There's a 0% unemployment rate in heaven. You didn't get into the school you wanted to? Somebody hurt you? Wait for eternity. Now, two things. First, that is a very real hope, and one that lasts. Romans 8, verse 18. 
Romans 8.18, for I consider, this is Paul speaking, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not even worth comparing the suffering of today. Eternity is very real and the joy and the sinlessness is very real. We mustn't let our sinful pessimism and our selfishness demand for immediacy cast a shadow on the very real promise of eternity and the beautiful hope that God promises to his people. And yet, there is a hollowness that feeling when the only hope offered is eternity. Because it's not. God offers his people a life without fear, lived in the mercy of God. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 72 through 75 of our song. It's God, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Notice again the tenses of this whole song. It is a present reality, a present hope, not just an eternal one. All our days isn't just after we die. It's the days now, tomorrow, here, today. So often a missing piece in our understanding of God's promises is what it means for our hope right now. This life is messy and waiting is hard, especially when it doesn't seem like anyone else is waiting like you are. But promised in your waiting is faith, hope, and purpose. Like Zechariah, our seasons of waiting are an opportunity to be wound up like that toy car, ready to explode in joyous praise as our hearts and minds become clear. And as we wade through suffering, as we emerge from trial, there is a joy in walking in faithful consideration of his word. When things are hard, the last thing we want to do is think about our holiness and our righteousness. But that's exactly what we get from Zechariah's own heart. Our holiness and righteousness are the joy. The answer to Israel's deliverance from the hand of their enemies is serving him without fear in holiness and righteousness all of their days. Because their true enemy isn't Rome. Their true enemy is the sin of the flesh and the temptation of their depravity. This is only confirmed by the message that his son John will bring. The message that John, the message of John was probably loaded with as much expectation as Jesus was. The people likely expected a herald to proclaim the coming dominance and conquering hero that would establish the kingdom of Israel forever. And yet look what they got in Luke chapter 1, verse 76 and 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. See, John's preparation is laying the soft soil to examine your own heart, to consider your own sin and need for forgiveness, to think on your own weaknesses and sin, not the oppression of your enemies or your circumstances. This message is for those who, like Zechariah, wait in silence. Look at verse 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, hope is offered to those who sit in darkness with no hope. The message of the gospel is for those who have nothing but the eternal night, who've been waiting 
forever. And this hope isn't material. It wasn't material for Israel. It isn't material for us. And what a pleasure when we grasp that. What an inspiration when hope lasts and isn't shattered by the fog of our present circumstances. What freedom is there when our emotions are not bound to the darkness of our suffering and our waiting? How much more brightly do the promises of God shine when it is in the midst of darkness and waiting that we hold even stronger to him? Elizabeth and Zachariah's neighbors were floored when Zachariah started speaking, understandably. He started blessing God and worshiping the very words that the Holy Spirit was giving him. Understandably, there was shock, amazement, and certainly a demand that they pay attention to what was happening. This leads us to our third point this morning, the witness of God's promise. The message of the gospel, the message of forgiveness and repentance that John will bring, it demands an audience, and it demands a response. And these people respond. Look at verse 64 again through the end of 66. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about, even through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. We see two responses by these people, these these friends and family that are witnessing all of this. First, by the mouth, or excuse me, first we see the word spread to all the countries of Judea. By the mouth of those present, the news of the song of Zechariah and his sudden outpouring of worship and praise spread through all the hills. After experiencing such a miracle, of course this would be on the lips of everyone. But more significant than water cooler gossip was the news of the Savior and the message of John. It demands to be spoken and it demands to be heard. The gospel demands an audience. It's not enough to experience hope ourselves, only to hoard it. When you've been given the joy of eternity and the gift of a present joy, despite whatever circumstances you're facing, what selfishness is it not to share it? If the news of the gospel truly is the greatest news, if the promise of deliverance is really true, if the hope of the gospel is as solid a certainty as Zechariah would have us believe, then what else could we do but share it Speak it. The witness of God's promise is the word of his people. After Jesus rises from his death, he appears to thousands of human eyeballs, all of which go and tell their neighbors and their families. Here, fame is the mechanism of God's salvation moving through the world. To experience true redemption is to raise the horn of salvation wherever we go evangelizing the good news that God forgives and offers redemption. And as all of us know, just pointing out the necessity of evangelism doesn't necessarily get us to the point of being faithful and obedient and successful evangelists. We often lack our evangelism sometimes because we feel ill-equipped for such a task. And in one sense, that's kind of bunk, right? Like, these people didn't have training. These people didn't have any, like, schooling for it. They just witnessed something glorious. They witnessed a promise of God being uttered and a fulfillment being right before their eyes and just shared it. And yet, these, and yet, for us, there is an element of not knowing what to say or how to say it. So in the coming new year, as Devin shared, 
We're going to be doing a class on evangelism to help with our uncertainty. We're going to go over the motivation and hope that inspires our evangelism. And we're going to go over practical tools to help us overcome our fears and our anxieties so that we might not have an excuse not to go tell it on the mountain and in the hills like the friends and family of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the second response, the first is the going and telling. The second response of the people is the very thing we've been talking about all morning. Look once again at verse 66. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. These people have been waiting for so long for hope and redemption for centuries. And when Zechariah proclaims the precursor has come, his name is John, the Lord has visited and redeemed his people, the salvation of the Lord is here, they cherish it and they store it within themselves as much as they share it without themselves. As much as the promises of God are on the lips of his people, they're equally as pressed into their hearts, internalized and believed to witness the glory of God in that moment with Zechariah, to hear the certain utterances of the Holy Spirit, how could they not treasure God's promise? I think we long for those moments of certainty, especially in our waiting, especially in our suffering. But the real the secret is we have it. We have it in Jesus. We... We are so blessed to live post-cross where we have the historical reality of Jesus, the Son of God. If you're a Christian, you have, the, you have every assurance and hope that those witnessing this moment did. You have the certain reality of history that beyond a doubt proves that Jesus came as a man. You have the already fulfilled promise of Isaiah 53 that he was stricken for us, that the Lamb died for us. And you have the very Spirit of God that inspired the words of Zechariah. That spirit of God moves in your soul to inspire and remind you of these very same promises. We don't have to wait for certainty that Jesus is who he says he is. We don't have to wait to know that God will accomplish what he says he will. But these people did. Hope arrives in the form of two babies. The silence of the Lord of several hundred years of not speaking to his people is lifted. The horn of David is here. The waiting is over. It's not. <laughs> Look at verse 80 with me. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The people of God, Zechariah and Elizabeth, had another 30-ish years to wait, to store up in their hearts, to treasure the promises of God. Faithful waiting is storing up in our hearts the promised redemption, the present hope, and our future glory. Because just when we think the waiting is over, when the suffering is at an end, when hope feels the most real, undoubtedly suffering and trial are sure to follow. See, between Eden and eternity, we wait. Between Genesis 3 and Revelation 22, we wait in a fallen world with fallen flesh, with fallen desires, and a broken humanity. We must assess what our waiting looks like. Does it produce faith? A stronger faith? Does it produce joy, worship, and certainty? Or does it leave you longing for better days, looking only relief for whatever circumstances necessitate your waiting? 
See, if you're holding fast to the promises of the Lord, holding fast to the certain reality of the gospel, then not only will the long lines be a paradoxical joy, but this, par- this present suffering will be far outshined by the glory that is to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for a third time to humble our hearts. Lord, that whatever pain and suffering and trial, whatever we're waiting on, Lord, whatever it is we're facing that provokes our hearts to abandon our worship, to abandon our hope, and to weaken our faith, Lord. I pray that like Zachariah, we would rest in the unshakable, certain realities of your word, the certain realities of your promises, and ultimately, Lord, the already established certainty of Jesus at the cross and his gospel. Lord, I pray that we would wait well, that we would wait faithfully, that we might glorify you and shine our light before men. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.